Turn to the second chapter of the book of James. In the 14th verse of chapter 2, and we'll be considering down through verse 26. Before I read the text, I, I uh, heard Charles Swindoll say one time that uh, he and his children, they were, they were small, were in this Volkswagen bug, and they were um, headed down a busy street in Southern California, and they were singing this song, If You're Happy and You Know It, You Know, Clap Your Hands. And they were singing that song, and they were, you know, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands, and then if you're happy and you know it, stomp your feet, and then if you're happy and you know it, shout amen. You know how that goes. And he said they were, they just kind of motoring along, and they pulled up to a stoplight in this busy street in Southern California, just as they got to the end of the song where it says, if you're happy and you know it, do all three. And he said, we uh, clapped our hands and we stomped our feet and we shouted amen. He said, it wasn't until then that I noticed, I kind of looked out of the the, uh, window of my Volkswagen bug and there was this car sitting beside us. And this guy was just kind of going, you know, what what is going on in that Volkswagen bug? You know how the rest of that song goes, don't you? If you're happy and you know it, do all three, and then it comes down, if you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. You, you know how it ends, don't you? If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. Remember that on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, and Friday, Saturday. If you're saved and you know it, your life will surely show it. Saving faith is like calories. You can't see them, but you see their results. Saving faith cannot be seen, but you can see its results. And that's what James struggles with. And it's where we've come to in this study. As a matter of fact, this is the heart of the whole book. That if you're really saved, why doesn't your life show it? Now James begins this passage with two questions. Now I'm getting out of of the uh, order of the the, uh, little worksheet you've got, but I want to do it this way. I want to raise the first question first, then then we'll get back in the order of this, the outline. But he begins this passage raising two questions. The first question is this. What use is it to say you have faith and not works? Can that faith save you? Now you can understand with a question like that, beginning this text, verse 14, that that Martin Luther is going to have a tremendous problem with the book of James. As a matter of fact, he calls James a right strawy book. That means it has no substance. And Martin Luther builds his theological system upon the theology that Paul sets forth in the book of Romans. And, and, And Luther is so concerned that James contradicts Paul 
that he doesn't even believe that the book of James ought to be in the canon. And his whole theological system, this justification by faith without works, is fundamental and, and, and predominant in, in, in Luther's theology. And he calls justification by faith alone the greatest doctrine in the New Testament. And he calls it the article of the standing or falling church. In other words, he says that a church will never stand and it cannot stand if it does not believe and hold to the fact that a person is justified by faith alone. And so he's going to have a hard time with the book of James because Luther sees James in contradiction with the Apostle Paul. Now, in all fairness to James I, and, 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 and Luther, and, and who is to say that he, you know, I don't want to give a, you know, the impression I think I'm smarter than him because I know I'm not, but there are three contrasts between Paul and James that we need to establish right up front. That's where we are in this outline. There are three contrasts between Paul and James. The first is this, that Paul is looking at the root of salvation. And James is looking at the fruit of salvation. And it has to do with the time factor and what, what Paul is doing. He's in his theology in the book of Romans, he's establishing salvation at its beginning. And, and salvation at that beginning time, at the time we're saved, is, is by faith and faith alone apart from works. But when James comes and deals with the matter of justification or the matter of salvation, he's looking at the fruit of salvation and he is, a, he is dealing with what happens after we have been saved. And surely, you know, there's no contradiction there that, that after a person has been saved, it's not by faith and faith alone after that. There's truly works that follow it or fruit that follows it. So that fruit will be the inevitable result of the root. All right, the second contrast is the contrast with regard to perspective. Paul looks at life from God's perspective and James looks at life from man's perspective. Paul looks at the Christian life from God's perspective and James is coming at the Christian life from man's perspective. Let me see if I can give you a homey illustration. The Apostle Paul is looking at, in, he's inside the house and he's looking at the fireplace and the fire in the fireplace. Paul is on the inside of the house and he's looking at the fire burning in the fireplace. James is on the outside of the house looking at the chimney. Now Paul can see the fire burning in the fireplace, but James is on the outside and he's looking at the chimney and he has this rational conclusion that if there's any fire in the fireplace, I ought to be able to see the smoke coming out the chimney. Now I'm not in the house so I can see whether there's fire in the fireplace or not. I'm not God. I don't know whether there's any, you know, I don't know whether this is saving faith or not, but I am on the outside and I'm looking from man's perspective and if there is genuine faith, I ought to be able to see some result of it. If there is any fire in the fireplace, there ought to be some smoke coming out the chimney. All right, the third contrast between Paul and James 
is a contrast with, regards to, with regard to terms. Now, when you read the book of James, you need to understand, and you're reading in light and the context of the Apostle Paul's material, his print, you need to understand, I need to understand that Paul instructs and James exhorts. Paul writes with an instruction, and James preaches with an exhortation. As a matter of fact, there are many, most people believe that the book of James is a series of sermons that James preached. So Paul instructs and James exhorts, and they use the same term, and the term they use is the term justification. Now that's a good old Baptist term. Most of us have absolutely no idea what it means. What it means. Now, Paul uses the term justification in this way. He defines justification like this. Justification is the act of God whereby He declares the sinner righteous while he is in a state of sinning. Now, the difference in that, most of the time we say that justification is the act of God whereby He makes a man righteous while he's still a sinner. It's not that. It's, it's the... It's the act of God whereby He declares a man righteous while he's still in the state of sinning. James uses the term justification in light of validation. Validation. That man's works validate his faith so that you could interchange validation and justification if you're reading it from James in James's book that he is, when he says he is justified by works, he means that his, his, his salvation is validated by his works. So James asks the question, we've come back to the original question in verse 14. James asks the question like this, What good does it do if a man says he has faith if he has no works to validate it? I want you to get that. What use is it to say that you have faith if you have no works to validate it? It's like saying, I have a driver's license, but you cannot drive. What good is it to say I have a driver's license if I can't drive? What good is it to say I have a safety, swimming safety badge if I can't swim? What good is it to say that I have a diploma if I don't have a job? You see? What good is it to say that you have saving faith if there is no works to validate that faith? For James, that is a phony faith. Now, the second question. First question, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but has no works? Second question. Can that, underline that, now you, you misquote James when you say, can faith save him? Now I get into these, you know, I hear these people want to debate about, you know, um, that, that you have to have works in order to be saved, and they'll quote James, they'll misquote James. And every time they'll say, can faith save him? In other words, can, can faith alone save him? That's not what James asked. James asked, can that faith save him? Underline that. And what he's talking about is the kind is that faith that has no works to validate him. And his question is, can a faith that does not 
is not validated by works, can that kind of faith save him? And it assumes the answer, no. That a faith that is not validated by works, a faith that does not produce fruit, that kind of faith does not save. See? All right, now the characteristics of a genuine faith. Now this morning we went through this whole thing. I listened to that. I watched the sermon on, I don't like to watch myself, or I certainly don't like to watch myself. I can hardly stand to listen to myself. My wife has the television on, watching the services on Monday night. When I get on the visitation, I walk in the door. She turns it off. She knows I can't stand to watch myself. I mean, that's torture. How much, where's Barrett? He would have said amen just like that. Somebody missed that. But I watched that thing tonight just to see how this came across when we were talking today, this morning, about how to know that you've been saved. And, 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 and the whole point of the, of the lesson this morning was that there is a way to know if you have genuine faith. And that's what James picks up on tonight. So I want us to do that. We're going to look at the characteristics of a genuine faith. Here's a woman, here's a, here's a mother... Uh, standing at a graveside, true story, she's just buried her son. He, he's, he was killed in a violent uh, clash, a, a gun, gun battle. About a 25-year-old boy, just lived his whole life as a, as a, as a hoodlum, as a thug. And, and, and just, you know, just really the roughest kind of guy. This, this mother turns, turns away and starts to leave and says to her pastor, standing by, I know my son um, lived a wild and violent life, but when he was nine years old, he was saved. And you know what we Baptists believe? Once saved, always saved. Now the answer that I wanted to give at that point was, of course you don't do that if you got any sense at all, any you know, love at all, you don't say this, but I wanted to say that's true. If you're, you're once saved, always saved is true if you have once been saved. Now, there is the characteristic of a genuine faith, and this is the first characteristic. Genuine faith is not indifferent, but involved. All right, let me read verses 15 through 20. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, and bless you, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is it? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works, Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The devils also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? The first characteristic of saving faith, genuine faith, is that it is not indifferent, it is involved. Verses 15 and 16 again. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is it? Now, genuine faith 
recognizes and responds to need. Now there are two things that I want you to notice about this. First of all, that the people that you, that you, where you, you minister to their need, these people, he said, are brothers and sisters. Now he's talking about Christian brothers and Christian sisters. He's talking about the family within the fellowship of the church. That's very important. Now there are hundreds and thousands of needs we see every day. And we just get overwhelmed by need if need you know, where that was the uh, criterion or the prerequisite, what he's talking about is ministering to the needs within the family of God. They're brothers and sisters. And the second thing that he, wants, he, he points out about this is that there is genuine need. There is genuine need. Now sometimes when we feed somebody, we give somebody a, you know, money, hand out money, that's not really their need. I was leaving church the other night, and I was, uh, it was late in the afternoon, and I, in the middle of the afternoon, I parked my car over here at the awning. As I started to go out to get in, in the car, this guy came up and stopped me, reeking with alcohol. He said, uh, could you give me a couple of dollars so I can get me something to eat? I said, no, I don't give money away. And he, and he, he went through this long story that he was fixing to go, and, and, uh, and, and, and be taken to some place to be dried out the next morning at 6.30. And I said, well, I just don't give money away. You just go get something else to drink. He said, no, I wouldn't do that. I said, yeah, you would, you know. I said, you reek with alcohol. I know what you're after. You want another drink. He said, no. He said, I, I'm hungry. And I said, well, if you're hungry, I'll buy you something to eat. And so I said, you get in the car, and we'll go get something to eat. So I pulled out, and I went over here to this taco place. And uh, we went inside, and... And uh, so, you know, he said, I said, what do you want? He looked up there, and he, he picked him out something. I said, well, give him two of them. I mean, he, you know, I figured he's... So I started to leave, and he, put, he grabbed me by the arm, and he said, could, could you give me a dollar for the road? <laughs> and I said, no, I'm going to give you a dollar for the road. And don't ask me for anything, any, any money, because I'm not going to give you any money. Now, money was not what that guy needed. Now we hand out, you know, it's so easy for us in this culture, this society of ours to hand out money, you know. Throw money at people. Throw money at problems. That may not be, that may be, you know, I could stand a little, but that may not be what a person really needs is money. And what he's saying is, if you see a person, a brother or sister, and they're hungry or they need clothes, and you do not respond to that need. Say you have saving faith. It's a phony faith. And J.B. Phillips translates this. What on earth is the good of that kind of faith? Saving faith will meet the needs of others. And if it doesn't, James says it's stupid. A quote from a man by the name of Monty. Love is not only an emotion, but a series of acts by which one conveys to the other he is deeply involved. Real love conveys to the other person that he will never commit the supreme treason that one can, can commit against another, namely, desertion when you need them the most. Now what James says is this, 
that if you have saving faith, you will never desert a man when he needs you the most. It's not indifferent. It's involved. Secondly, genuine faith is not independent, but in partnership. And so he says in verse 17 that faith by itself is dead being alone. Faith is not independent. It's always in partnership. Genuine faith does not exist in a vacuum. Genuine faith does not exist alone. You know that song we used to sing was popular back when I was, you know, could, you know, it was like, like music, love and marriage. Love and marriage, they go together like a horse and carriage. Dad was told by, by mother that you can't have one without the other. So that love and marriage exist in partnership. And faith and works exist in partnership. How can it be works if there's not a partnership involved, if there's not two people involved? How can there be faith, he says, if there's not an involvement in, with others? It does not exist in vacuum. Third, faith is not invisible, but on display. Real faith is not hidden. It says in verse 18, But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. A lady came into my office, a young woman, and, and she was in love with this guy, and she was going to get married. That's Pastor Nolan Fort Worth. And she said, I wish you'd talk to him. I'm not sure. I don't think he's a Christian. So I, I made an appointment with him, and we sat down to talk. And he was a sharp young guy. He worked for uh, General Dynamics, and we visited for a while, and then I, I began to move in on the, you know, on the, on the, on the religious, on the, on, the, on the faith stuff. That's what he said. He said, now wait a minute before you get into that. I'm going to tell you how I believe about it. He said, I believe that faith is a very, very personal thing. He said, my faith to me is very, very personal. He said, my faith is very, very private. He said, now I don't get out on the street corner with a Bible in my hand and preach sermons. He said, I don't get, you know, I don't... Uh, make a big display of my faith. And he said, I don't, you know, go around doing a lot of talking about it. But he said, I'm just as saved as you are. He said, my faith is very personal and very private. It's just between me and God. That's a pretty strong argument. My faith, my faith is a very personal thing for me. I mean, you can't have faith for me. And my faith is between me and God. But saving faith cannot be personal and private and hidden. It just can't be. I challenge you to show me anywhere in the New Testament where there was saving faith that was not put on display. And that's what he means, that's what the word show means there in the Greek. It means to put on display. It means to, to exhibit it. It means to display it visible. It's on display. All right, four. Saving faith is not 
merely intellectual assent. It's from the heart. Now look at verse 19. Let's read it again. You believe that God is one? You do well. The devils also believe and shudder. I mean, it makes cold chills run up their spine. Let me say what I've said ten jillion times. That the devils in hell believe more in the fact of God than the folks who sit in this church on Sunday morning. You say, now wait a minute. Now, I don't, I don't think that's right. Well, when you, when you hear the word God, you read his name, does that cause you to shudder with reverential awe? Did the devils? Does the devils? Now, this belief that the demons have, he said, as he's talking about here, is an intellectual belief. It's believing in the fact of God and in the realization of who God is and what God is. And in the realization of who and what God is, they shudder. But saving faith is not mental acceptance of the fact of God. It's more than that. It's a response in the heart to God. Now, I don't suppose that you'll ever meet, um, you know, anybody, you probably won't, who will ever say, I don't believe in God. Now, somebody was out doing our people search the other night and, and, and found somebody that did. But I don't suppose that I, in, in, in 31 years that I've been trying to bear witness to Christ, I've ever found over one or two people that said it and made me believe, they didn't believe in God. And most people that I know, 99 and 9 tenths of them, believe in the fact of Jesus Christ. And they believe that Jesus came and died on the cross and rose again, and they believe that intellectually. And they pick up the Bible, and they turn in the Bible, and they read those verses of Scripture, and they close the Bible and says, Okay, yeah, I believe in God. Everybody believes in God. And I believe in Jesus, and I believe He died on the cross. Is that what saving faith means? It does not mean that. It's believing in the fact of God and responding in the heart to God. It is the, commit, the abandonment of my life to Him as Lord and Savior and recognizing and, and acknowledging that I am a full-time follower of Jesus. Um, let me see if I can illustrate it like this. Um, Pete Incavillia is up to bat. By the way, it's a little story parenthetical. I sent my name in for this uh, uh, jackpot deal where <laughs> if they draw your name and somebody hits a home run, you get fly anywhere in the United States. Well, I sent my name in, and they drew my name. I was lying on the couch one sleepy, hot Saturday afternoon a few weeks ago, and this guy came on. This announcer, I was listening to the Ranger game. This announcer said, "And Pete Encavilia is batting for Gerald Kittle in Durant, Oklahoma." I came that high off that couch. <laughs> now, Pete Encavilia hits a home run. I get a free trip anywhere that Delta flies in the United States. Popped out in center field, by the way. <clears throat> now, Pete Incavilla is at bat, and he hits the ball 450 feet over the center field bleachers up in the grandstands. We call that a home run. No, we call that a home run. When is 
a home run home run when the ball leaves the bat and goes over the fence is that when a home run is a home run or is it a home run when he touches home plate after going all around the bases? Is that when it's a home run? See? And the announcer gets all excited and he says, it's a home run, but it isn't because he's still there standing out watching it. See? You know, and when is a home run a home run? Now, here's the big question James is asking. When is saving faith saving faith? Is it when you come to grips with the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior? Or is it when you abandon your life to Him and the evidence of that saving faith produces works? That's a good question. Now, he uses two illustrations. Now listen to these illustrations. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Use the word validate. When he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. Now, Abraham did a lot of wonderful things. You know, it says in Genesis chapter 15, we've been studying about that in our Sunday school class, that, that the pivotal time, one of the greatest verses in all the scripture was when it says that when Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness. But he had done a whole lot of believing in God prior to that event, and he did a whole lot of believing in God after that event. And, and he uses this illustration that, that this faith of Abraham moved in this encounter and, and in obedience to God he surrendered up his son Isaac. Was it the surrendering of his son Isaac that earned him his salvation or was it his saving faith that resulted in his surrender of his son? See? And he uses a second illustration, that's the one I want to read because you're not familiar with this one as much as you are Abraham. Now listen to this story. It's the story of Ahab the harlot. Now listen. Then Joshua the son of Nun sent two spy, men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. I want you to turn these guys over. But the woman, who, the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I don't know where they came, where, they, where they're from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. They, they slipped out, go get them. Sick them, you know. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road. They go off hightailing off after these guys. They're hidden up on this roof. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof. Now watch, listen to this marvelous story. And said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Now here's Rahab. Now, 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 now let, me, let me set this in, the, in its context. Here's this woman who had been a harlot. 
Do you think she's not a believer in, the Je in Jehovah God at this point? Of course she is. She said, we know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you went, when you came out of Egypt and how you did to the kings, two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. Now look at this. For the Lord your God, He is the God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. Now James comes to this marvelous little story in Hebrew history and says this, here is how saving faith is demonstrated. Here is a person who has this belief in the God of heaven and earth and the result of that belief in the God of heaven and earth moved in the heart responds in obedience to God. Now, he comes to the last principle. Now I want you to notice this last thing in the, in, the, in, the, in the concluding principle. I want you to see this. Concluding principle is verse 26 of chapter 2. Let me read it and, and we're through. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now you tell me, you know the answer. I don't have to ask you, but when is a person dead? When does death occur? What is death? Physical death. Physical death is the separation of the spirit from the body. That's when death occurs. Physical death is the separation of the spirit from the body. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, spiritual death is the separation of the Spirit from God. But physical death is the separation of the Spirit from the body. So that when the Spirit is separated from the body, you have death. Now you've already anticipated what this analogy is like. He said, when there is separation and there is not faith and works together, when there is separation and you got faith over here and you got works over here, when you have a separation of faith and works and they're not together, you have death. You have death. So if there is not works with faith, it's a dead faith. It's an intellectual faith alone. Now, if you're happy and you know it, say amen. All right. If you're saved and you know it, then your life is God assured. I didn't, I didn't say that. I'm just quoting a friend of mine. Let's pray together. Our Father... We thank you that in the last few weeks we've been brought 
not by accident, but by providence, again and again to an awareness that there is more to salvation than a 30-second experience of profession. And I pray that when you're through with us, we'll be thoroughly grounded in the truth that if we're saved, it's going to make a difference in the way we live. Bless this time of invitation, I pray, for Jesus' sake. There are three invitations. One invitation tonight is for you to receive Christ as your personal Savior. I'm not asking if you believe intellectually that there is a God or Jesus died on the cross. I'm asking you, as the Scripture says, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Deep within you, moving within you, is a need to surrender your heart to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Inviting Him to indwell you and indwelling you to be there for everything He is and everything He means and loves and desires. Opening your life up to Christ and everything that He is. Have you ever done that? Wouldn't you like to do that tonight? Settle this matter once and for all. I give you my life, Christ. And I trust you and you alone save me. I want genuine, a genuine salvation experience. I want to go out of here changed. Maybe you need to come and join the church. Maybe just like this precious young lady who followed Christ in baptism. You've been saved and you want to publicly declare your faith. Or maybe to rededicate your life to Christ. Would you stand and follow Alan as he leads our song, invitation song. You come if you will.